0: It's all about Jesus' preparation of those disciples to get, be ready to be sent out. He teaches them what the kingdom of God is all about, how it grows. He teaches them how people are going to respond to them, how what they should do with their fears. And then that section ends with Jesus sending them out. And what happens then is after Jesus has begun his ministry, after the disciples have been out spreading the word even further, everyone... And the whole region is saying, what is going on here? Who is this Jesus? And that's the third section. Jesus begins to answer that question of who he is. Well, the passage we're looking at today really falls into two of those sections. It ends, brings to conclusion the section about the training of the disciples. And we'll see them sent out. And it begins Jesus addressing the issue of who he is. So, let's get into Mark 6. Take a look at the last lesson Jesus teaches them before He sends them out. Let me just read the first three verses of Mark 6. And He went out from there, and He came into His hometown, and His disciples followed Him. And when the Sabbath had come, He began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by His hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And it bothered them that here was this carpenter pretending to be a teacher. Now he didn't have any theological training. Uh, he hadn't been to all of the, the schools that the rabbis go to. He was a carpenter. Some of them are probably saying, Now oh, look, here's the table and chairs he made me. And somebody else saying, you know, when I let him build that addition to my garage, I didn't even let him come in the front door. I made him come in the back door. He's a carpenter, a manual laborer. See, they live in a very hierarchical society. And, and a carpenter and a rabbi are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And here is this, this peasant pretending to be a teacher. How, how dare he presume to teach? And then they refer to him as the son of Mary. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to note about this designation, the son of Mary. First of all, this probably means that Joseph uh, is dead, maybe has been dead for some time. This would explain to some degree why Jesus waited so long to begin his public ministry. He waited until he was 30 years old. But if Joseph had been dead, his stepfather Joseph had been dead for some time, his mother, Mary, would have needed Jesus to be providing for her and for the other children. And he may have been ready to get out there and save the world. That's what he came for. That was his destiny. But he lived by the same basic principles we all live by. He knew that the way the Father had things organized, he needed to take care of things at home first. Take care of his primary responsibilities before the Father would open the the, the more public, more widespread ministries. The same thing... Is true for us. If you want to be involved in what God is doing, if you want to be an important part of His program, that's great. But start by taking care of things at home, your responsibilities there. Start with your primary responsibilities, and then your Father will open doors of ministry to a more high profile, more far reaching ministry. To Him who's been faithful with little, much will be given. The other thing about that designation, Son of Mary, one of the commentators I read, William Lane, he argues that even if Joseph was dead, that in that culture it was still improper to refer to a man as the son of his mother. They would have still referred to him as the son of Joseph unless they were trying to emphasize the rumor that everyone there in Nazareth knew that Jesus was illegitimate, that they didn't really know who his father was. See, I think it's, they were continuing to try to put him down because they took offense at him. And then Jesus says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his own home and among his own relatives and in his own household. Jesus tells these guys, expect this. This is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's going to be. See, these people did not want to see Jesus for who He is. They wanted to see Him for who He was. Little Jesus running around the carpenter shop. Or or grown-up Jesus. The carpenter. They fit into their comfortable little world. It it didn't make them uncomfortable. Jesus is telling the disciples, you got to be ready for this too. You know, when you go back to the areas you come from, people are going to look at you and say, who are you? You're a fisherman. You don't have any training. Where do you get it? talking about all this religious stuff. Let's leave it to the experts, the ones who know this kind of thing. And people would be offended. People would take offense at them. And people would not take them seriously. The same thing is going to be true in your life as you start taking the Lord seriously. There'll be friends, new friends, who are excited about this, who are very interested in the things you're learning. But unfortunately, some of your old friends, some of your family won't be able to handle your spiritual growth. They'll look at you and say, listen, I, I uh, drove you home from the bar more than one time. What are you doing talking about all this religious stuff? And I think it's great that those of you who've been around Boise for long enough sit in a room like this and look across the room and your jaw drops open and you say, what is she doing here? And as you're staring at her, you, regis- you see the, the shock register in her eyes as she's looking at you, wondering what you are doing here. But as, as uh, awkward and amusing as that might be, you know how painful it is when our close friends and our family can't handle the changes that we're going through. Uh, I, I know many of you have already experienced the pain of a, of a parent, or a brother, or a sister, or a husband, or a wife, who just can't handle your spiritual growth. It threatens them. They don't even listen to what you have to say. They don't even consider that these changes may be good and healthy. Because they don't want you good and healthy. They want you the way you were, the way they are. And they're going to look at your new religiosity as presumption. And they're going to resent it. They're going to be... Annoyed by it. As as heartbreaking, as frustrating as this is, Jesus says, expect it. Don't be surprised by it. It'll always hurt, but we needn't be surprised by it. Then we're told in verses 5 and 6, And he could do no miracle there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Now, why couldn't Jesus do any miracles there? Is his power contingent on their belief? If they don't believe hard enough, he doesn't have any power? Kind of like Puff the Magic Dragon. If they don't believe, all his scales will start falling off. Is all of these healings that he's been doing, is that all psychosomatic? The power of positive thinking. And if there's no positive thinking, there's no power. And not at all. Not at all. You see, Jesus' power is not at all. All contingent on others belief jesus power is objective and unassailable; it cannot be diminished nor resisted. The reason he could not do miracles here is because he lovingly and willingly restrained his power. There will come a day when all who disbelieve will face his power, and it has nothing the, the, the strength of his power has nothing to do with their attitude. Jesus, out of His love for these people, restrained that power because He knew that to just go ahead and exhibit that power in the face of such determined disbelief would only damage them, would only cause them greater condemnation, would only harden their heart more. See, the, the issue really wasn't lack of evidence in these people. They were amazed initially by His teaching They saw his wisdom. They saw his power. But they quickly recovered from that uh, temporary vulnerability to belief by the the spite, by the prejudice that we saw in the questions they began to ask and to try to cover themselves up. That's why Jesus shakes his head in amazement. He says, these guys work so much harder at disbelief than they ever would have had to by just trusting me. C.S. Lewis says on more than one occasion, that before he was a believer, when he was an atheist, he had to work far harder to maintain his atheism. He had to be far more diligent to, to watch what he read, what he, what he thought about, than he ever did once he became a believer. Again, the problem, the issue is not evidence that they need to hear more, they need to see more. The Pharisees at one point asked Jesus, Show us some signs. Prove that you're from God. And Jesus refused. See, He's not a trained pony that will jump through the hoop on command. He won't submit to their laboratory. Not out of of petty pride, but because He knows it won't do them any good. It will, in fact, do them hard harm. Because in the face of that additional evidence, they will still harden their heart. They will still accuse Him of being demon-possessed. They will still find a way to write Him off. His miracles, His works of power are for those who believe or for those who will believe if convinced. And this is an important lesson for the disciples to learn. Because as they go out, especially into their home areas, people they love, and they find resistance, they find people rejecting them. And it's going to be easy for them to think, if I only said that better, if God would only do something more in these people's lives, more power, they'd become convinced And Jesus wants them to know, no, it doesn't always work that way. It's not if you only gave them more, if you only did it better. Their hearts are hard. They're not open. And it hurts in our own lives to see people we love who are willing to look anywhere but to Him for satisfaction. They're willing to believe anything but the truth. And we think, if I was only smarter, if I only knew how to say it better, if if God would only do something and really impress them, and they'd turn. But it's not true. As painful, as as sad as it is when a mind is made up, we've got to accept it. Well, having finished that last lesson, Jesus sends them out. Verse six, the second, second part of it. And He was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. He was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Don't put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out of there, shake the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony to them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. When Jesus originally called these twelve people to himself, he called them for three things. He called them to be with him. This is in chapter 3. He called them to be with him. He called them to preach or to teach. And he called them to have authority over the demons. Well, they have now been with him for almost two years They've been watching the way He does things. They've been watching His attitudes, the way He treats people, His compassion, His care. And they've been listening to His message. They had it down pretty well by now. And finally, they've seen Him exercise authority over demons. They've seen the way He did it. So the classroom phase of their instruction is over. It's time for their internship. He sends them out. Now, there's a couple things I think worth noting in this. First of all, these guys were nowhere near finished products. I mean, they had a lot still to learn. But Jesus doesn't wait until they have it all together. He doesn't doesn't send them out totally unprepared, but He doesn't wait until they've got it all. He's ready and able to use them just as they are. And realize, it's, it's a completely different thing To stand there and watch Jesus do it, to watch Jesus teach, to watch Jesus cast out a demon. It's completely different to stand there with no Jesus next to you in front of a man who's demon possessed and with a shaking voice stammer out, Come out, please, come out in the name of Jesus. You know, and what a rush it must have been for these guys when it actually happened. What a relief. And what a thrill when they, to the best of their ability, said what they had heard Jesus say. And people understood. And people believed as a result. People responded to that. What an exciting thrill for these guys. You see, a lot of times we feel totally inadequate and unprepared to minister. And we are. I can guarantee it. But Jesus doesn't wait until we have it together. He can use us exactly as we are. All He asks of us is that we go in His authority and that we, to the best of our ability, say what He says. Bring His Word. And then we get the chance to see Him work through us. You know, what a thrill to see Him loving people through us. To see someone understand something for the first time. To see someone comforted or encouraged. See someone loved who never experienced, never known love. Through us. and that's exciting. So don't shy away from getting involved in ministry. Don't shy away from getting involved in, in, in the youth ministry on one of the youth staffs. Or, or don't be afraid to, to host a Bible study. Or to even start a Bible study at work, at lunch. You know, take a step. Have that conversation with that person that, that God's been putting on your mind for so long. Go visit that person whose spouse died a year ago but still feels it like it was yesterday. Go and ask them how they're doing and listen to them. Again, it is a thrill. It is an excitement to see God work through you. And He will. And in the process, He'll teach you. He'll grow you. He'll, he'll show you more of Himself. Another thing to note is that Jesus sent them out in pairs. This is an important principle that we should partner up when we're involved in ministry. You know, if, if you're involved in, in, in wanting to see a study at work, well, find somebody at work you can pray with. Dream dreams with. Get somebody on that, that youth ministry team or that is teaching Sunday school with you or, or, or somebody in your family that you can pray for your family. Find somebody to partner up with. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says, Two are better than one because they have good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Again, so find that other believer and partner up. It's a rare person who can go it alone and survive, much less um, uh, prosper. Find somebody who can be an encouragement and accountability a solace to you. Anyway, let's take a quick look at uh, Jesus' other instructions to these guys. First, He tells them there in verse 8 and 9, not to take anything with them but a walking stick. He says, don't take any extra food. Don't take a backpack. Don't take your credit cards. Don't even take an extra shirt. Just go and watch the Father take care of you. That would be like telling you this morning... Leave right now from here on a three-month trip. Don't go home. Don't pack. Don't take anything else. Just go. Watch the Father take care of you. And that's what they did. Now, this is the one instruction in this section that was not intended to be followed for all time. Why do I say that? You're probably thinking, "Well, he says that because he doesn't want to do that. (laughs) He doesn't want to trust God that radically." Well, hopefully that's not why I say that. I uh, say that because later on Jesus said that in Luke twenty-two. It says then Jesus asked them, "When I sent you out with a purse, without a purse or a bag or extra sandals or any of that stuff, did you lack anything?" Nothing. They answered, and he said to them, "But now if you have a purse, take it also; and if you have a bag, take it; and if you don't have a sword," Sell your cloak and buy one. See, the lesson that Jesus wanted these disciples to learn was not that foresight and planning were unnecessary, useless. No, the lesson He wanted them to learn was that they were dependent on the Father. And that lesson is always true, and that lesson will always be true. And once we have a firm grip on that reality, we've always got to keep that foremost. But having learned that lesson, it is important that we begin to plan, that we do our best at looking ahead. People who use a verse like the one we have here in Mark as an excuse for lack of thoughtful planning are wrong. We never can become confused and think that the ministry depends on our plans, on our skill, on our foresight. It is always and will always be dependent on the grace and the power of God. Yet He calls us to do our best job at planning and then lay our plans at His feet for Him to use as He will, for Him to accomplish His purposes. Uh, Then He tells them that when they go into a town, they're to stay with whoever welcomes them. They're not to jump around. They're not to go in. And if they get a better offer after they've been there a day, move to the next house. You see... What he's emphasizing here is they're not to show any prejudice toward the rich or toward the poor. They're to treat everyone the same. Jesus demonstrated this in his own ministry, but it bears making explicit. When they encounter somebody like Jairus, an influential, wealthy man, they're to treat him with respect and dignity. But no more and no less than they would treat the the social outcast, the woman who had the issue of blood. And not to show any prejudice. And the same thing is true of you and your ministry. If you get this Bible study going at work during lunch, and all the important people that you'd hoped would come, don't. And all the unimportant people that you re- really weren't even thinking about in the first place, do. Well, that's who God is after. That's who God wants you to minister to. That's who God wants you to bring the words of grace and His love. His mercy. The same thing is true whether you're in a youth group or in a Sunday school class, ministering in your family, wherever you are. What He's telling us is that we are to minister to the ones He brings to us, the ones that He gives us to minister without prejudice, without showing any preference. And finally, Jesus says, "...in any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet." For a testimony to them, now your translation probably says as a testimony against them, I don't know why uh, the translators made that choice. that's not the normal uh, meaning of the dative. It, uh, and I think it, it, it makes these verses sound more harsh than they, they necessarily than Jesus necessarily intended. see what I think Jesus is talking about here is what he's already talked about. He's already been explaining the fact that some people aren't going to be open. Some people, no matter what, how well you, you do it, no matter how loving you are, aren't going to accept you. And they're not going to accept the message. And what Jesus says is, in that case, you have to wash your hands. That's our modern idiom that would be the same as, as shaking the dust off your feet. Wash your hands of the situation. And we don't have to do that in a harsh or, or self-righteous tone. It doesn't mean we write them off forever. It doesn't mean that, that we stop loving them or that we don't sometimes test the waters to see if their attitude has changed. It doesn't mean that we're not ready like that if they do want to talk about spiritual things, that we're, we're ready to talk. But it does mean that once it's clear that they don't want it, that we don't just stay and harangue them, that we don't keep pressing them, We can say lovingly, gently, I love you. And this makes me sad, but I'm not going to push you. I'm not going to, to try to do something I cannot do, and that's change your decision. And you see, this works as a testimony to them. It leaves them to deal with their own decision. It just might get them thinking, rather than having to keep you off, they've got to deal with what they have done, with what they've decided. Well, verses 12 and 13. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. That brings to a close that second section that we've been in for the last several weeks. The disciples have been sent out. The training, that initial training period is over and they've been sent out. And that opens the next section. You see, Again, as Jesus sent them out, the, the, the word spread before Jesus had moved from place to place and, and word was spreading. But now the entire region had been saturated by these guys who had gone out and healed in the name of Jesus and preached in the name of Jesus and cast out demons in the name of Jesus. So that now everyone was saying... Who is this? Now, that's not the first time that question's been asked. It was asked in chapter 1, when he cast out his first demon. Everybody said, who is this? Even the demons obey him. In chapter 2 and 3, the Pharisees tried to answer that question. They said, yeah, he must be demon-possessed. They, they tried to explain it away. Chapter 4, the disciples themselves asked that question. They say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, now everybody, everybody is asking that question. And so Jesus sets out to answer that over the next several chapters to, ver- to chapter chapter 8. And what we have in verse 14 and 15 are some of the initial speculations. Then what we have from verse 16 all the way through verse 29 is this rather lengthy digression uh, explaining why Herod became so uh, fixed on one answer. So let me let me just read that whole section. It's pretty long. And make a few comments and then try to jump back to to verse 15 if I have time. Starting with verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah, and others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias herself came and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother." And when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, what a sordid story. What a gross story. This story, I think, is told to us for a couple of reasons. One, so we, just to tell us what happened to John the Baptist. And two, to show us why later on Herod is so fascinated with the Lord, with Jesus. But basically what happened was shortly after Jesus was baptized by John, Herod arrested John. Jesus didn't start his public ministry until after John had been arrested. Herod arrested John, threw him in the dungeon. Now, the reason he arrested John is because John said, What you're doing is wrong. His stepbrother, or excuse me, half-brother, Aristobulus, had a daughter named Herodias. Now, Aristobulus was killed by his father and Herod's father, Herod the Great, who actually killed uh, at least three of the four brothers, Great family. But anyway, one of Herod's other brothers, Philip, married Herodias, took his niece to be his wife, lived with her in Rome. Herod, our Herod, Herod Antipas, went to visit his brother Philip in Rome, had an affair with his brother's wife. She later left Philip, came and married Herod. So Herodias was at the same time Herod's niece, his sister-in-law And now his wife. John says, come on, man. (laughs) You know that's not right. That's wrong. We all know that's wrong. You can't marry your niece and you don't steal your brother's wife and marry her. And because John was saying this, Herod threw him in jail. But Herodias, who didn't sit well with criticism, that wasn't good enough. She wanted him dead. John used to go down into the dungeon and listen or uh, Herod used to go down in the dungeon and listen to John and ask him questions and argue with him you know he never really rejected the truth he liked to hear it but he never let it affect him he was like a, a moth attracted to the flame always attracted but he never let it touch his heart he had this mixed response to the truth Herodias on the other hand had no mix in her response she wanted it silenced now you see these two defective responses to truth all the way through our society. Some like Herodias, and there's no, no question, they want it silenced. They, want, they will resent you, they will hate you for believing it. They want you shut up and shut down. While others like Herod would never openly oppose the truth. And they want to hear it. They want to think about it. They may even be good churchgoers. They may treat religious people with reverence and awe and respect, but they never let the truth penetrate them. They always keep it at arm's length. They always just feel guilty and never change their behavior. Never let it affect the thing that they know that is wrong. They never get rid of their guilt, and as a result, they're fully compromised. And in the end, they're just as dangerous as somebody who outright opposes the truth. Anyway, Herodias finally gets her opportunity. She, uh, Her husband Herod's having a birthday party. He invites all his generals, all his cabinet ministers, all of the high mucky mucks in all of Galilee, and they're having a wonderful party. They're getting drunk. So Herodias sends her daughter in to do this erotic dance. You know, what a loving mother uses her daughter as the sexual bait to manipulate her husband. And it works. Herod is so excited by this dance that he promises her anything she wants. So she comes back to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias springs the trap. She says, ask for John the Baptist's head. And Herod is miserable. Man, that's the last thing he wanted to do. He never intended things to go this far, but since he's already compromised, he has no depth, he has no fortitude to be able to stand up and do what's right. He's afraid of what his friends are going to think, and he kills John. See, compromise always demands more than we thought we could give. It always leads us to do unimaginable, unplanned evil. Compromise and sin are cruel slave masters. They're never satisfied until we're broken, until we've gone too far. Anyway, this is why John, because of his guilt, thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back to haunt him. But now let's uh, hurry back in the last two or three minutes that I've got to that that important question of who Jesus is. That's the pivotal question of, of the passages we're moving into, of this whole section of your life. Who is this Jesus? And the first answer that they give, the people of Jesus they give there back in in verse 15, is that He is Elijah. Now, the Jews were looking for the return of Elijah because many of them understood the prophecies in Malachi to be saying that when Elijah came back, he would usher in an age where Israel would once again be militarily and politically dominant over the world. And so they saw Jesus as fitting very well into their plans, into their political and, 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 and military ambitions. They saw Jesus fitting very well into their dreams and into the things they wanted to see happen. But they never stopped and listened to Him. They never asked, what are His plans? What are His purposes? See, we do the same thing. We see that Jesus fits very well into our ambitions, into our plans. Man, He can help me get my life together. He can help make me successful. He can bring me peace. He can bring me satisfaction. He can do those things. But is that all He's about? Is, is He come just to fit into our plans, to fit our dreams? Is He not the one whom we should be submitting to? Shouldn't we be asking, what are His plans? What are His dreams? Aren't His purposes the ones we should serve? But a second answer that people give to who He is is a prophet. Now, that's close. I mean, He was a prophet. He did bring God's Word directly to them. They had been waiting for 300 years. That was the last time they had a prophet. 300 years. Like, for us, that would be a 1691 That's a long time ago. And they thought, at last, God has given us another prophet. But Jesus is more than that. You know, our society is willing to admit that Jesus is a prophet. He was a a great man, a wise man, as great as as Muhammad or, or Buddha, maybe even greater. But a man, just a man. And a man, no matter how wise and how great, makes no claim on us. There's no need for us to submit to him and to obey him. Who is this Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he the ultimate nice guy that just wants everybody to feel okay? Is he a harsh judge that we have to avoid and fear? Is he a petty God? That we have to placate with religious practices and rituals. Who is this guy? Well, over the next several passages, over the next several weeks, we'll be seeing what Jesus' answers are to who he is and what he's like. But let me let you in on it. I read ahead. Chapter 8 Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say, or who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, some say you are John the Baptist, others say you are Elijah, and still others say a prophet. Then Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him saying, you are the Christ. He is the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God, the Creator of all that is, the Lord of the universe who demands and deserves our allegiance, our submission, our trust. He is the one we are to follow all of our lives with with fear, respect, grateful love. Who do you say that He is? Let's pray. Lord, uh, so often we see you as just an auxiliary to our lives, just a nice addition, someone who can serve our needs and our purposes. Lord, over the next week, show us who you really are. Call our hearts to love you, to follow you, to worship you. We want to see you, Lord. We want to understand And especially, Lord, we want to respond to the truth. We don't want to just play with it. We don't want to compromise. We want to follow you for the rest of our lives. Lord, use your spirit to draw us to yourself. Pray this in your name. Amen.